We're doing things in a little different order this morning. I hope that doesn't upset anybody. Uh, But anyway, uh, we will be back to our regular pattern next week. What I'm saying here is the sermon is coming earlier in the message today or in the service today than it normally does. But I have a lot of exciting things to share with you. Uh, I don't know about you, but well, Lori said something the other day. She said, when you first said you're going to do Revelation, I was going, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but uh, let me tell you, I have my, t- my study times have been very rich and very deep uh, in a way that I haven't experienced in a while. And so I don't know about you, but I'm really enjoying this, and I feel like God is stretching me and bending me and twisting me and and making me grow, even though maybe I'm resistant to it in certain ways. Uh, so we're going to be looking in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Uh, I'm going to be begin reading this morning at verse 10, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Uh, then we're going to jump back uh, to verse 12, and that's where we're going to start and work our way through. Uh, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and we understand that this is the Apostle John on the island of Patmos where he's been exiled. On the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it is being caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Right, therefore, the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Remember we talked about last week how Revelation certainly is a book full of signs and symbols and and sometimes we know what those signs and symbols are because the book reveals the meaning of them to us specifically. This is a good example of that. In other words, we have no reason to question what the stars in the hand of Jesus uh, happen to represent and what the lampstands represent. We know it as matter factually. There's no reason for us to speculate or try to come up with any other explanations than what the Bible gives us here. The Bible interprets the Bible, right? Okay. 
Verse 12, he says this, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Now, let me ask you something. Do we see voices? No. We hear voices. Right? And let me tell you, in the Greek, this is exactly what it says. It doesn't say that that he turned to hear. He turned to see. That should be of some interest to us. Because what I would say is it's a clue to tell us this. That he's been standing there and he hears this voice like the blast of a trumpet behind him. There's some familiarity he has with that voice. It's a voice he's heard before. And a voice he has longed to hear for a very long time. It's the voice of Jesus. You may not realize it, but it's been 30 to 50 years since Jesus had ascended into heaven. We have no no scriptural evidence that there was any visions or anything like that that God gave to John of Jesus. We don't have any visitations by Jesus. And so for, for 30 to 50 years, John has been in silence in regard to hearing the voice of Jesus speak, and suddenly he hears it once again. The same voice that so long ago said to him, Come follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. The same voice who on the Mount of Transfiguration said to he and, uh, and, and Peter uh, and James, Do not fear. The same voice that said do not fear to all of the twelve when they were in the boat and they thought this apparition, this ghost was coming to them walking on the water. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. It is only me. The same voice. But there's a difference. Described as being like the blast of a trumpet. As one having the greatest and unquestioned authority. God speaking. We have no doubt of that. He also sees these seven golden lampstands. And as we read in verse 20, it tells us here what these seven, these seven golden lampstands represent. And it is these seven churches in Asia Minor that we've been considering a little bit up to this point, And we'll be getting more deeply into as we get into those individual letters uh, beginning next week. It reminds you of perhaps the lampstand that was in the holy place, in the temple, in the tabernacle. We know that lampstands have a purpose, and the purpose is to bring light. I always wondered this, that in the, in the, on that particular lampstand in the temple, in the tabernacle, 
there were seven individual lamps on it, and I always wondered why there weren't 12. Because when you consider everything else, you would expect 12 because that would be a representation of the seven tribes of Israel. But there's not 12, there's seven. You need to understand that the Hebrews, the Jews, believed and understood that the number seven represented perfection. It went all the way back based upon the seven days of creation. So what that lampstand represented in the temple tabernacle was the fullness and the completeness of Israel. We need to understand that this lamp that we're looking at now, these lamp stands, those seven represent the fullness and the completeness and the perfection of the church universal. Which includes us. Very appropriately, in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In other words, without Christ, there is no light. Without Christ, there's only pitch black darkness. He is the light of the world, and he calls us to be lights of the world. As churches and as individuals. For the purpose of shedding the light of Christ into this dark world. It is part of who we are. And his light must shine. It must shine in us. It must shine through us. Groups of people that do not focus upon Jesus are not of Jesus. They are in spiritual darkness, the pitch black of the world. And I just want to challenge us this morning with a lot of things. And one of those is this, is we as a church, Springs Presbyterian Church, is called to be a light bearer of Christ into this world. That other people would come to the light. It may be our most primary thing to do as a church, other than worship God, to bear light into the darkness. Verse 13. And in the middle of the lamp stands more like a son of man. So, so John is not only hearing Jesus at this point, now he's seeing Jesus. But he's the glorified Jesus. Just like his voice. Same in a sense, but in other ways very, very different. Jesus is most, uh, most often referred to himself as the son of man. I mean, it's a title he used for himself more than anyone else ever did. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man in the Bible first appears in Daniel 
chapter 7, in a vision. And it's the vision of the Ancient of Days and the one like a son of man coming. I really believe that that vision has a lot to do with our understanding of the vision of the heavenly throne room and the appearance of the Lamb that's coming up in chapter 4. Just keep that in mind. He's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and, and girded across the breast with a golden girdle. That very much sounds like the vesture of a high priest. If you look at the, the book of Leviticus in the, in the book of Exodus where, where it talks about what the priest wore, this sounds very much like that. So we, we need to understand that Jesus here is standing as a priest. Now, there's a lot of confusion in churches in general today about what priests do. But what priests did in the Old Testament and what they do in the New Testament. And by the way, the church is described in a number of places as being a nation of priests. So if you're a believer, then there's a sense in which you fulfill that priestly function. But what they do primarily is intercede. And this is the thing I want us to remember this morning, and that is that you and I have a priest. The name of that priest is Jesus. We need no other priest. And he stands in the heavenly throne room as we're speaking right now, continuing to intercede on our behalf. He does it unrelentingly does that make you feel good I mean if it doesn't it should (laughs) I mean it really should to know that Jesus speaks your name to the father and he's constantly saying he is mine she is mine you have given them to me I have paid the penalty for their wrongdoing. And as we said in in weeks past, probably the greatest sense of our practice of being priests is to continually lift the names of unbelievers, and of believers too. Let's put them in there too, before the throne of grace. That is how we mostly function as priests, interceding on behalf of other people. Uh, Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Again, this is very reminiscent of how the Ancient of Days is described in Daniel 7. There's a sense in which from that we can say this, that there's there's a sense now that the Son is bearing the image of God, the same 
uh, same image that the Father bears. Now we know that, uh, that in many ways that white is a symbol of purity, right? We also know that it is a sign and uh, symbol of maturity. Just look around the room. <laughs> There's a few white-headed people here. And uh, also demonstrates worthiness on the part of that person of honor and respect. What I would say to you is this, is for the first time, John is seeing Jesus as Jesus is. But as he has in every aspect, in all fullness, become God, which he's always been, and man. Perfectly, absolutely. In other words, was there change that took place with the Son through the ages? There was not in his divinity. You need to understand that. In his, in his, the Godhead, he didn't change one iota. But we have to understand that his, in his human nature, he did change. He learned, he matured, and so on and so on. So what we see here is the fully mature Jesus. All that he's intended to be, all that he will ever be. Complete. Absolutely. Fully God and fully man. He's no longer that humble fellow that John spent years walking down the dusty roads of Judea and Galilee with. He is one to be reckoned with. He is one to be answerable to. This is the Jesus who presides over us. His feet were like burnished bronze, verse 15 when it's because the glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. We know that there's a time coming when Jesus will crush all of his enemies. And that's one of the big messages of the book of Revelation is that time is coming. When he will obliterate all of his enemies. He'll be cast into the lake of fire. Every one of them, without exception. Psalm 110, most quoted psalm in all of the Old Testament, or the New Testament. In particular, Hebrews. And what does the verse say? The Lord says to my Lord, what? Sit at my right hand. Until what? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet.
That's reflected in what is said here. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Reminiscent of Ezekiel's visions of God in a number of places in his book of prophecy, chapter 1, verse 24, the first one, uh, where he sees this, the glory, he describes it, calls it in a number of places in the book, the glory of God that he saw. And it's sometimes described as the royal chariot of God, because the description of it sounds very much like a chariot with wheels. And these beings that had wings and different heads and all of those things. And God in the very middle of all of it. It mentions there, I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters. Now water by it doesn't normally make any noise, right? Unless... It's flowing. Unless it's going from one place to another, then it, then, it, then it interacts with the surfaces of the rocks or whatever happened to be in the creek, and, uh, and, 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 and that makes noise. I don't know about you guys, but I love waterfalls. If you ever get out to Oregon, Washington, you've got to take a drive down the... Uh, the Columbia River Gorge, because there is waterfall after waterfall, and one of them is 300 feet tall. But waterfall after waterfall after waterfall. But there, none of those are anything like Niagara Falls. I mean, they're all small, dinky, insignificant compared to Niagara Falls. And I had ne- I'd always wanted to go there, but I had never been there. And my lovely wife took me there for our anniversary trip last year. And if you've never been there, it's just, it's just, this, just this awesome noise. What you're talking about here is, depending on what time of year it is, it all depends on how much water is coming out of the Great Lakes because all, all of it flows through there. It can be anywhere from 150,000 to 700,000 gallons a second. And then it immediately falls 100 plus feet to the rocks below. It's loud. You get up close, you can't talk to the people around you. They can't hear what you're saying. Do you see? This is what is being said here. This is how the voice of Jesus is. It is loud. It's powerful. It's something to contend with. Have you heard that voice? We always talk about the quiet, gentle voice of Jesus. And certainly there is that. In his right hand, he held seven stars. So what is the mystery of the seven stars? The seven churches. 
tells us in verse 20. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. There are a number of places in Scripture where the Word of God is described as being a sword. One of my favorite verses, you know, when we were having the, the party the other night, and when, when I said, mentioned Hebrews, when people asked what my favorite book was, Hebrews is right near the top. John probably is more of my favorite. But Hebrews right there at the top. And one of the reasons is this. Is because of, of, of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Because what it says is this. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit. Of both joints and marrow. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you want to know what God's purpose in his word is. That's it. There is no better Statement of it in the Bible anywhere. Martin Luther said one time that the Bible is alive. It, run, it has legs. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And if you have studied and read the word of God, you know what he's talking about. That it is convicting. And you can't run away from it. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 16, we will read these words in just a week or so. He tells them to repent, one of the churches. And then he says this, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's talking about heretics that they've allowed to stay in the church. And then there's this one, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, talking about the full armor of God. And the last thing that's mentioned is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Important. Our principal weapon in the battle that we're engaged in. And we are in all-out battle. We may not realize it all the time. We may may not go for days and months and weeks and sometimes years without even giving thought to it. But we are in battle against the evil forces of wickedness and evilness in this present world. And it's true for every one of us. But you know what? Before we can fight that battle very well, we have to fight the battle within. And I hope you're present of that battle that's going on inside of you because there's still a vestige of sin there. And as long as it's there, there should be a battle. There ought to be a battle going on. And the desire of your heart should be to put that sin to death completely, absolutely, to be done with it, for it to be gone forever, never to raise its ugly head again.
His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, I dare you to describe anything to me that's brighter than the sun is. We know this. The sun's so bright that we can't even look at the sun directly very long without it damaging our retina permanently. Remember, John was one of those disciples that was on the that were on the, the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And so John's already seen Jesus in this light because he's described there his clothing and his appearance to be bright shining like the sun. I mean, can we imagine anything? brighter than the sun. But I would imagine in comparison, there really is no comparison. That even the brightness of the sun is not bright compared to the brightness and the fullness of the glory of God. It's the only thing that we have to even begin to compare it with. Notice John's reaction when he sees Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. In other words, John was terrified. He went into panic mode big time. He was afraid. Maybe the first time he had ever been afraid of Jesus. But he was. Theologians talk about what's called the beatific vision, which every believer will eventually experience. And that is Jesus, the first time you see him as he is. Whether it be in the clouds of glory in the air or it be in the heavenly realm. There's a popular song around right now, and there's been a movie made based on this song. And in part of it says, When I dance for you, Jesus, to your feet will I fall. Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. Can you only imagine? Imagine what it will be like to see Jesus for the very first time in all of his fullness, in all of his glory. With that said, I want to challenge us with the idea that, that, that Jesus didn't appear to John to scare the bejeebies out of him. Jesus appeared to John to comfort John. And we see that reflected here. Because Jesus doesn't leave him laying there on the ground. He takes that same right hand that he had those seven stars in and he reaches down and he touches John. And for, for how many more times John hears Jesus say to him, do not be afraid. 
you have no reason to be afraid of me. Have no fear in regard to me. By the way, I skipped over something that I really need to, to hit on here. Well, I'll do it in just a second. Uh, but he talks, uh, let's go back and let's just look at this. He, he talks about the, the seven stars that are held in his hand. And so there's been some conversation about that. What exactly does that mean? Because you need to understand that uh, angelos here, which is a Greek word, it can be translated as angel which is very often is in the Bible, but it also can be translated as messengers. I mean, angels are messengers that come from God. They're a special messenger that comes from God. Some people would derive from this that God has assigned a guardian angel to every church. He's just there all the time. He keeps an eye on things, keeps people out of trouble, so on and so on and so on. Reports back to God what's going on in Springs Presbyterian Church. In other words, there might be a guardian angel sitting you know, on the wall here behind me, listening to everything that's going on and all that. Is that a possibility? It's a possibility, but it's not likely. Now, we do know that God sends forth his angels, right? Uh, I would say that this is an instance where that word probably means messenger. And what I mean by this are those messengers who bring forth in the churches God's word. In other words, the pastors, preachers of those seven churches and of all the churches universal as a whole. Notice that they are in his hand, that he is, and you know, and we think of Jesus maybe probably was right-handed, and when we think of right hand, we think of hand, we think of power, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. So we need to understand that Jesus has them in his hand and he's, protect, he's guarding them, he's protecting them. He goes on to say some things that... Uh, We've already covered somewhat. I am the first and the last. As we said to Alpha and the Omega last week, the beginning and the end, you can translate it. The living one. And this is one of the things that, that Peter challenged folks with when he began to preach. That was you killed Jesus, but you guess what? He's living. He rose from the dead. And we know it. The things which are. In other words, we need to understand that there are some things that actually are at the time this is going on. In other words, some things in this book are being fulfilled at the time John's talk, uh, writing this stuff down. It's not all distant future. Things that are reality at that point. Things which shall take place after these things. So we need to understand this. Like we said before, there's some things that have taken, actually taken place that are recorded in the book of Revelation. There are other things that have yet to happen. And he tells him to write again these things. 
And that's chapter 1. Only took us three weeks to get through it. We will be going on next week and begin to dig into these different letters to the seven churches.